Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris begin day one of the new administration. We'll hear from a mother-daughter combo of local political activists on what it means to them to see a black woman get sworn in as VP. Plus, if you missed it, we'll play the Amanda Gorman poem everyone's talking about and find out why one of her early writing mentors knew she had something like that in her. It's all ahead on Take Two. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm A. Martinez, and uh, it is all done. We have a new president and a new vice president. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris were both sworn in under the sunny D.C. skies earlier today. It was pretty cold over there, though. But now their work begins, and there is a lot on their agenda. Here's President Biden. We face an attack on our democracy and on truth. A raging virus, growing inequity, the sting of systemic racism, a climate in crisis, America's role in the world. Any one of these would be enough to challenge us in profound ways. But the fact is, we face them all at once, presenting this nation with one of the gravest responsibilities we've had. Now we're going to be tested. Are we going to step up, all of us? It's time for boldness, for there's so much to do. And this is certain. I promise you, we will be judged, you and I, by how we resolve these cascading crises of our era. Now that President Biden has charted a course for America in these next four years, let's find out how it resonated on the streets of Washington, D.C. We have with us Farai Chidea, creator and host of the public radio show Our Body Politic, which airs Saturday afternoons at 4 on KPCC. Now, Farai, you were out uh, earlier during the inauguration. First, what was the mood on the streets? Because I understand you had to hire a security team to protect you. Yeah, you know what's funny? First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, What's funny and not funny is that the security team and I were just like wandering around in this perfectly safe very antiseptic Washington union station was shut down. And um, there was one vendor who I talked to uh, cam from the Bronx who had come to make money and was really disappointed. He was selling sort of end of a Trump era t-shirts, but the irony is that he was a Trump supporter. And um, I actually just want to play a little bit of uh, our conversation to you. So let's take a listen. Because I don't really, I don't support Trump as a person. I support uh, his business ethics. Mm-hmm. The truth is, we made a lot of money. The truth is, as a black American, more of my black brothers and sisters had jobs during Trump's presidency than ever. So the truth is, we were making money, you know. The truth is, I started my business during Trump's presidency, you know. So, I mean, it is what it is, you know. People take what they want to take from things. And, you know, he was just one of so many voices that let me know once again, and this is why I go out and do field reporting, that politics is not a series of stereotypes. There are trends, there are patterns, but here he is, this young black man from Chicago who for the first time ever voted for President Trump. He did not vote, he, he was old enough to vote uh, for President Obama uh, before, um, but chose not to, and it was Trump and his embrace of what Cam thinks of as the American dream that that took him to the polls. And so to loop back to the larger thing, I went out with a security team that I hired from an incredible agency run by a black female former Secret Service agent. But we were just basically wandering around. The Mm. whole city was shut down for like 20 square blocks. 
And there was a protest zone. This was one thing I found extremely interesting. There was a permitted protest zone, um, which means that in order to show up, you would have to show your ID. Mm-hmm. All of the groups that were supposed to be in the permitted pro- protest zone who were pro-Trump protesters decided not to come. And I'm wondering if some oh. of them actually had been in the siege and were like, there's no way I'm showing my ID. So, oh, wow. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, there's there's layers upon this, but there were there was only one person who I saw actually protesting and she just had this like, she seemed to be looking for personal help from the president, you know, like, can you help me with this thing? And sometimes the president does, depending on who you are. But there was there were no, no uh, right wing extremists. I got to talk to um, a gentleman, a uh, public information officer from the National Guard, and I asked him straightforwardly, well, you know, we have heard published reports that a few Guard members were removed from service because they might have had you know, uh, been compromised in terms of their ability to serve out their duty on this day. And he said, there's 23,000 of us here. You know, yeah, there's going to be five, 10, 20 people who are taken out, but there's 23,000 of us. That lets you know how tight the security was. I had a weird curiosity for I Did Cam, was he able to sell any t-shirts? I mean, was there anybody to sell t-shirts to? No, no. And he was like, we took a big, he said, we, we made 2000 t-shirts and we haven't oh, sold wow. one all day. Wow. You know, when, when you were listening to, to Joe Biden's speech and also to uh, people like LA's uh, own poet laureate, Amanda Gorman, what were you feeling personally? Absolutely. And I know, you know, you, you've met her before, right? Yes. I met her because I'm a Harvard alum and she was at some fancy lunch. And I, I was like, wow, who is this rock star? And so I'm so glad that she's had this amazing, amazing stage. And, you know, to me, the Biden quote that stands out for obvious reasons is politics doesn't have to be a raging fire destroying everything in its path. Um, and then he goes on, we must re- reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. And this is critical. You know, I am committed to us having an environment where we reclaim truth as a public square and what I think of as a public utility. Truth is like electricity. It is it is a form of energy that can enlighten all of us. Yeah. Or when we lack it, we are truly bereft as a society. Well, it gives you power and it makes you powerless if you don't have it. Uh, yeah, well, one more absolutely. thing for I really quick. So, I mean, it, it, I was watching it on TV. You were there. I mean, did, is everyone breathing a, a sigh of relief uh, given everything that's gone on the last couple of weeks? I think that the people who wanted there to be a peaceful transition of power are breathing a a sigh of relief and those who did not are preparing. So I also talked to experts on extremism and one said last night, give it a month. This is a quiet period, so it's not over. All right, uh, Farai Chidea, creator and host of the public radio show Our Body Politic that airs on Saturday afternoons at 4 right here on 89.3 KPCC. Farai, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, from the streets of D.C. to right here in Southern California. Before the inauguration ceremonies today, we asked listeners to share their feelings about the incoming administration. Lance Blair from Santa Monica talked about Vice President Kamala Harris first, and you could almost hear the smile in his voice. I am so excited to see Kamala Harris sworn in as our first female vice president of the United States. And he was optimistic about the country's future under President Joe Biden. I feel this energy in the air today on Inauguration Day where there is a new chapter in America and we still have so much work to do, but I am excited to be moving forward with the work and with the Biden-Harris administration. Ann Himes from Laguna Woods had a few specific policies in mind, starting with climate change. Climate affects everything else, and I hope the Biden administration really deals with climate on all different levels. And foreign policy was also on her list. I also hope for the first time that the U.S. might be a really serious and balanced mediator in the Middle East. I hope he moves the embassy back. I also hope that they close Guantanamo and deal with gerrymandering. 
All right, now we turn to L.A. residents and mother and daughter, Carolyn and Dallas Fowler, who are both very politically active. Carolyn is a new member of the Democratic National Committee and serves as vice chair of the Women's Caucus. She's also a government affairs advisor for the Los Angeles Unified School District. Her daughter, Dallas Fowler, is founder of AIRSPAC, which stands for Helping Empowered Individuals Reach Success. She's also on California Coalition for Clean Water Reliability. They were delegates to the Democratic Convention this year. And also four years ago, we talked to them way back in 2016. That was before Donald Trump was elected, when they came to us to talk about their support for two very different Democratic candidates at the time. Daughter Dallas was with Bernie Sanders, and Carolyn, the mom, was with Hillary Clinton. So today, as a new administration takes office, we wanted to check back in and hear where they stand on their differences. So welcome both uh, back. Well, greetings. Glad to be back. This is Carolyn. This is Dallas. Thank you so much for having us. All right. So first off, it is the big day, Inauguration Day for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, Carolyn, let's start with you. How are you feeling about uh, the Biden-Harris administration? Oh, I am totally ecstatic and excited about it. I'm classifying it as love under new management. I mean, there's so much work to do, but I do believe that they have put in the leadership team that can make it happen. Dallas, what about you? I'm relieved. I'll be the first to say Joe Biden wasn't my first or last choice for president, but I think he's going to do a great job in uniting the country. And I am extremely excited for our former senator, now Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, to be in this time, making history, her story, shall we say, um, it means so much for someone like me, a California native. It's a culmination of so many things all in one. It's hard not to, you know, just be teary-eyed the whole time we were, so... So let's get into Kamala Harris for a second, because she's accomplished a a kind of a trailblazing trifecta, not just the first woman, but also the first black and first South Asian woman to become vice president. You both are black women. How significant is that to you, Carolyn? It is extremely significant when you think about the 19th Amendment, when some women got the right to vote up until today. But it's particularly important to me because I am a golden soar. So we are in the same sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Incorporated Inc., and understanding being the first on the yard, as they say. Uh, We usually say first in the yard, first in space, and now first in the White House. But it's also significant uh, in the fact that uh, we are one of the, what they call the divine nine of African-American sororities and fraternities. And what that means to us is all having the primary goal and vision of service, service to the community that you live in, uh, service to the world. So for me, uh, it's almost indescribable uh, when I think about the opportunities that she presents for young women of all colors. Dallas, what about you, especially the moment when uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor swears in Kamala Harris, a brown woman swearing in a black woman? What a beautiful moment for immigrant families, a beautiful moment for indigenous peoples, West Indies, East Indian, and to see Kamala and her family, a beautiful blended family, which also represents so many families in this country. Um, I think there was not a dry eye um, for women. And just as an African-American woman, indigenous woman, um, we are beyond proud at this of this moment because we know the fight that's ahead And we know who we're sending in there to battle. You mentioned a fight. What fight do you see coming? We still have to battle COVID. We still don't have equity in this country um, in regards to women and how um, we work and how we are paid. Um, We still don't have equity in regards to Black women and and brown women and, and people of color. We have a number of issues that we still have to wrestle and grapple with, you know. Um, 70 million people still 
um, voted for the prior administration. And we have to figure out how to come together and be united and have fairness and equal playing field. We're still going to have to have some difficult conversations and tell some hard truths. And Dallas, you mentioned some of the battles that women still have ahead of them, uh, battles that uh, can be maybe led by Kamala Harris and the position she's in. So how do you think she can redefine what power looks like in this country? I think just her in this position is already a, a defining, a redefining moment. Sometimes it's just the image, the impact, the fact that you were there, the fact that this happened. I think Kamala represents a heritage that says that we are coming for everything we are owed, and that is the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And she upholds those standards um, for the few, for the least of these. And um, that is going to make a major difference having her voice at the table. When women are at the table, um, in those um, Joint Chief of Staff meetings, in those uh, cabinet meetings, having her voice that knows what it means to be what the single mother may be going through, um, being raised by a single mom, um, knows what the plight is in urban communities. Kamala is going to be able to make impact on policies or decisions that our president is going to be making just by simply being in the room and being heard and having the respect of our president. Now, one last thing for both of you, because Joe Biden today called for unity. He's been doing that for a few months. And and I think he means it in the larger picture of uh, this country being as divided as it is between uh, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals. Uh, but there's been a division within the Democratic Party for years now. And I think you two both represented that four years ago with your split between uh, between Dallas, your support for Bernie Sanders and Carolyn, your support for Hillary Clinton. So I ask you where you think the Democratic Party stands today and where do you see it going from here? Uh, Carolyn, go ahead. I think that was true then. You know, we are the Democratic Party, but you know what? I think this last election demonstrated that when we set our sights on a goal and we work collectively and collaboratively, which we did to get 80 some million votes, we're in much better shape than we were before. The key is for us is to keep it going. How do we keep engaged? How do we keep our young people engaged? I've always had the philosophy, you can't just wait till election time. We've got to keep people involved the entire year. The good news, I believe, uh, tomorrow, the uh, DNC, I am a newly elected member of the DNC. We have our meeting and we have our election of officers. The president has put out a slate. Uh, Jamie Harrison is a proposed to be elected to be our chair. I already voted. I'm very confident about his leadership. He's demonstrated that. There are a couple of things I'd like to see a little differently uh, in the leadership, uh, someone from labor, uh, someone from the West Coast, but I think we can get there. Um, I, I just think the last election, if we can hold the momentum on how well we worked uh, across the nation, I think we're in good shape. Okay, Dallas, that means you get the last word on where you think the Democratic Party stands today. I think today, in this very moment, the Democratic Party stands united. Um, Now, tomorrow, we get back to scrapping (laughs) for the things that matter to us. (laughs) We have been through uh, some valleys, but today is a peak moment, and we look forward to the dialogue, doing the work. I'm really excited about the new members of Congress that are coming in. Uh, I know that they're going to be a new burst of energy. We have our internal issues, but I think as a party, but what makes the Democratic Party so much stronger is that we are willing to have this big tent and we are willing to put forth and have the dialogue and healthy, healthy debate on the issues. Um, And that should be a signal to the American people that um, this party 
does the vetting um, of all of our candidates. And so I think you're going to see a lot of that. But I also think there is going to be a shift towards some of the ideals that were, you know, in the last five to 10 years seeming out of reach. Um, we, we battle. That's what we do. We, we, within our party, we are going to have the healthy debate. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we are leaning towards every, every day, a more perfect union. So, um, as a party today, yes, we stand united. Um, tomorrow we'll be united, but we will be having debate (laughs) and that is who we are. (laughs) That's mother and daughter Carolyn and Dallas Fowler, both convention delegates for the last two election cycles. Carolyn is a newly elected member of the DNC, and Dallas is founder of Airs Pack, stands for Helping Empowered Individuals Reach Success. Carolyn and Dallas, thank you very much uh, for checking in with us again. Oh, thank so you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. So, did y'all hear the uh, poem that was read at the inauguration today? It's called The Hill We Climb. And you hear about the person who wrote it, L.A.'s own Amanda Gorman. You know what? Instead of just telling you about it, let's just play it. That's what we're going to do when Take Two comes back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster... Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. Today's inauguration of President Joe Biden was marked by many firsts. Among those making history today was L.A.'s own Amanda Gorman, the first ever youth poet laureate in Los Angeles, who recited her poem, The Hill We Climb. It's a work she finished days after the attack on the U.S. Capitol, and in it, she echoes the same themes that Joe Biden has returned to again and again. Unity, healing, grief, and hope. Let's take a listen. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans, and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us, 
we close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So, while once we asked... How could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Now let's turn to someone who knew Amanda Gorman when. Michelle Shaheen Sino worked with Gorman through the nonprofit Right Girl in L.A. and helped her find her way to poetry. Michelle, welcome to Take Two. Thank you. Now, many people were introduced to Amanda for the first time today when she stepped up to the podium. But as a former mentor of hers and someone who helped her find her way to poetry, what was it like to see her name, uh, to see her and, and up there today? I was in awe of her, as I always was, even when she was 15, 16. Uh, She's just a force of nature, and I'm so happy her main dream has come true today, which was to inspire other people, especially young people, to know that they can make a difference in the world. Well, she kind of inspired me, and I'm an old person, Michelle. Yes, absolutely. So what was Amanda like when you first met her? Was was her potential evident right away, or was it something you watched uh, blossom over time? Her potential was absolutely evident. You know, I knew instantly that she was going to go very, very far. 
Um, I think she surprised herself even by getting there at 22 to such a big stage, but we always all knew she would go very far. What always struck me was her innate belief in her ability to make a difference. And I don't know if she always knew how she would do it, but she knew that she would. Um, and it was incredible to see her find poetry uh, when the application for the Los Angeles Youth Poet Laureate came across her through Right Girl, where I was volunteering and another organization she was a part of. It was the first ever program that year um, in, in Los Angeles. And I keep wondering, what if that hadn't found her? That was how she found poetry and the power of reciting. And it just really highlights the importance of these local organizations. And I think, Michelle, what you mentioned about Amanda not exactly knowing how she was going to make a difference, but knowing that she would eventually, I think that's really important for young people uh, and maybe mm -hmm. people of all ages to, to understand is that if, if the fire burns inside of you, it's going to come out eventually one way or the other. Absolutely, because her dream wasn't necessarily to be a poet. When I first met her, it was shortly thereafter her dream. But her dream was to make a difference. And when I looked at her today, I just kept thinking, all she wanted to do when I met her frequently back then was make a difference, inspire young people. And she was up there doing that as a young person. And I couldn't be happier for her. Now, I understand that Amanda, just like uh, President Biden, overcame speech impediments uh, as a mm -hmm. child. So what did it take, you think, for Amanda to get to where she is today, deliver a poem uh, so eloquently, really, that touched millions across the country? I mean, it had to be a, a very, very satisfying, self-fulfilling moment. It had to have been. She worked so hard, even at a young age in high school. She was always worried, you know, could she do everything she wanted to do? She worked so hard wanted to walk in the footsteps of all the women that inspired her. And um, she also reached out to them for help, which I think is also imp important for young people, is that she found the support she needed along the way, reached out to these strong women and found mentors um, other than myself. Even today, I just saw that Oprah Winfrey gifted her a ring from Maya Angelou. And these are the people she looked up to and inspired to, aspired to be. Well, that's not bad, right? Oprah not Winfrey gift, gifting her something from wow, what a what a what a gift to get. Now, yes. what does it mean for the first ever youth poet laureate to be a young black woman from Los Angeles and the product of a single parent? And what what message do you think that sends to young would-be poets and, and people of color just like her? It's so important and so powerful, especially after the past four years, which felt so dark and uninspiring to so many people, that now today with our new vice president and with Amanda on stage, this is who we are as America. Uh, it's just so powerful. She really rose to the occasion. And uh, on a personal level for young people, just knowing that if you follow your dreams, you can inspire others and make such a big difference. Uh, it's really, she gave the, the country a big gift today with her performance. Yeah, there, there were a lot of incredibly poignant moments in the poem she delivered today. Which part do you think, for you at least, uh, Michelle, resonated the most? For me, probably a little different than other people was when she said, um, this is our country, something along the lines of, this is our country, the daughter of a single mom could dream to be president and is now reciting for one. Because I remember when I met her, her dream was to be president. And when I first saw this announcement, I thought, wow, she really got to that podium much earlier than she thought. <laughs> uh, and perhaps in a different way than she thought, but she made it there. And I was so touched. Michelle Shaheen Sino, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right, for more about Amanda Gorman, just head to our website at LAIST.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. More Take Two coming up. Stay with us. How to LA is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. Watching President Joe Biden address the country from the U.S. Capitol today, it was eerie to think about the attack by armed insurrectionists that happened there just 14 days ago. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. Yeah, prevailed, but the insurrection has left many wondering how vulnerable our government is to a potential coup. I'm Maritza Bushman. I was born in Santiago de Chile. I've been here for 46 years and a citizen of the United States for 43 years. Maritza knows something about living in a fragile democracy. In 1973, she was in Santiago when the military, backed by the CIA, overthrew the democratically elected president, Salvador Allende. She and her daughter, our colleague, KPCC producer Monica Bushman, recently spoke out about uh, both of those events, starting with the attack on January 6th. So I don't know if you were watching as it was happening or if it was later in the day, but when you saw... On TV, the, you know, mob of people storming the Capitol. What did it make you think about? It was very scary. It really made me think when it happened in Chile. Good evening. Chile today joined the list of South American countries to fall under military rule. Tonight, control of the Chilean government is in the hands of the country's armed forces. The presidential palace is under attack. And although communications were It was different. But you have the same kind of feeling that it just seems so scary and unreal. Something that I never thought that it would happen in this country. We were not that close, but we were not too far away either because we could hear the bombing. You mean in Chile during the coup? In Chile, yes, when it happened there. On the day that it happened, were you watching on TV there? How did you know? We didn't even have a TV, but you could hear the bombing. And then we hear in the radio, they say that they were bombing the capital, the house where the president was. But immediately, people start running to go and get some groceries. Why? In Chile, 46, 47 years ago, most people, they didn't have a pantry in their homes. You go and buy the bread. You go and buy the meat and go to the vegetable place and get your vegetables. So people... You mean you went like every day or every week? We went every day shopping. So it was scary not knowing what's going to happen, trying to get some food and prepare for whatever was going on. And it seemed like at the beginning people thought maybe it wouldn't last very long. Well, Chile have a history... It was always a democratic country and very stable. This was the first time that this happened. So people that wanted this to happen and they were asking the military to do something, they thought that this was just a temporary thing until we have election again and have a democratic president. But this lasted 17 years. And it was a lot of damage. Many people died. And nobody ever know exactly what happened to them. They disappear. And at the time, what were people calling it? Were they calling it a coup? Or what's the word? They call it the toma de estado, like taking the state. So the military took over. And they were three people that they were going to be in charge. But very, very quickly, it was only one. Pinochet. Pinochet who took over and became a dictator. And um, when the coup happened, you and Dad hadn't weren't married yet, right? No. But no. you were planning to get married and you were going to live in Chile, right? We were engaged and we were planning to stay in Chile and live there. But when this happened, they took over all the media. 
they start taking the radio station, the television station, the military. And also they were talking that anybody that wasn't a citizen, they were the people that were doing all the damage and whatever, and that's why the military have to take over. So people, whenever they saw somebody that it wasn't from the country, sometimes they will report it. So it was dangerous for, for dad to be there. Well, dangerous for everybody, but... It was dangerous for everybody, but more dangerous for people that they were not Chileans. So we decided that we were going to come here instead of living there, which was our plan. So after after the coup happened, how long were you and Dad in Chile for? Only three months. We got married in, in December 15, and we came here immediately after January 1st. But at that time, it still was very difficult. To, when we got married, we have to have a special permission to have people at our wedding. And then when we left the house, we have to have a special permit and a white flag and the car that took us to the hotel where we spent the first night. And while we were there, you could hear gunshots all around. They were shooting people who were breaking the curfew? or Yes. So when this siege happened at the U.S. Capitol, did you hear from any of your sisters? They were calling me, and they couldn't believe what they, it was happening in the TV. Uh, one of my sisters said that she just changed the channels and tried to find out, is this happening for real? Tia Lupi? Tia Lupi, mm-hmm, yeah. And she was terrified. Like worried for us? For us, mm-hmm, yeah, for us. It's like when 9-11 happened, Tia Cristina called crying, telling us to pack up and go back to Chile. <laughs> so I feel like I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, they never thought this kind of thing could happen here, and that's what makes it, partially what makes it so scary. Did you feel kind of the same way in Chile when the coup happened there? Well, when it happened there, yes, it was very scary because something like that never happened in Chile before. But when it happened here, I think it was even worse because I always thought that this country, it's, it's just the model for everything, every other country, to learn from what people do here. It just seems so incredible that something like this could happen here after a whole incredible history of this country that one man can make something so horrendous and what an awful stain in this country that is awful. That was Maritza Bushman with her daughter, KPCC producer Monica Bushman. There was a lot of Hollywood at the inauguration today. You had J-Lo, Gaga, Garth. Find out how Hollywood stands to benefit under the new administration. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Why do Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show? Are you ready to have a good time? Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC, and you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Martinez. Celebrities including Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, and Tom Hanks were all part of the Biden-Harris inauguration celebrations. Meanwhile, the Actors Guild may revoke Donald Trump's membership. And what will the new administration mean for the entertainment biz? For this and more, it's time to go on the lot. 
stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining me as always, Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, a lot of major star power at the inauguration today. Uh, what did the presence of Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, two massive singing, acting, and producing stars, along with Garth Brooks, tell you about where this new administration is putting itself in pop culture? Well, certainly that was a, a starrier group than we saw at the Trump inauguration, which was uh, sort of mainly known for having Scott Baio and John Voight. Uh, but what was interesting was also, I think, what these particular people represented in terms of uh, the Biden administration's kind of image that it's looking to put out in the world. I mean, certainly having a Latina sing This Land is Your Land, including some lyrics in Spanish uh, on the day that Biden is signing executive orders that would make massive changes to American immigration policy feels more than symbolic. Um, and then, of course, Garth Brooks would seem to appeal to more of a red state voter coming from the country music community. Having him sing seemed a little bit of saying there is room here for you, you too, uh, Trump voters. And then Lady Gaga wearing a giant peace dove uh, holding an olive branch. Um, again, a, a sort of gesture, I think, of inclusion to a, a broad group of people in a pop culture sense. You gotta admit, it was nice to hear the Spanish. I, I was working on other stuff, kind of trying to pay attention on the side, and then all of a sudden I heard the Spanish and my my head whipped toward the screen, so it was neat to hear. Now, uh, yeah. yeah, in terms of a policy issues that Hollywood cares about, I have to figure that COVID is really top of mind for the industry as the new administration takes over. So what does Hollywood need from D.C. on this front? Well, yeah, I mean, like every industry, uh, getting the pandemic under control is crucial for the entertainment industry. So a more focused and effective federal strategy for the vaccine rollout and containment of the virus would mean that production can resume in earnest and more people can get back to work. And also that movie theaters, theme parks, concert tours uh, can all go on and reopen. And these huge sectors of the entertainment business can go back to bringing in some money. Yeah, it'd be nice to head to Disneyland and Magic Mountain for fun instead of for, be, for getting a vaccination. <laughs> for vaccines. I'll still yeah. get the vaccination. There. Yeah, but I'd rather go for fun, uh, definitely. Yes. Now, we, we've talked about this a bunch, Rebecca. The movie theater side of the business is really on life support because of the pandemic. In The Hollywood Reporter, there's a graph that tracks how under every president box office office revenue has grown, except in this last one. So what, if anything, can the new administration do for movie theaters and, and the movie specifically? Well, you know, Biden has proposed this $1.9 trillion in economic relief to those impacted by the pandemic. Theater owners would like to be a part of the group that gets some of that money. Um, but the, the main thing that will help theaters and theater owners is for movie going to be safe. So it is Yes, getting some federal money, but more so getting the pandemic under control so that theaters in places like L.A., where we haven't had them open since March, can reopen and studios can start releasing movies again. Yeah, and TV, too. I mean, TV is a huge export for us, along with movies. So what could the Biden administration do on the global side of this business? Well, Trump's aversion to free trade was an issue for American movie studios that want access in particular to China's box office marketplace. So if the Biden administration takes a different tack with China, we might expect to see that help Hollywood in its business there. The creative industry also wants help cracking down on piracy abroad, and that's something that they could potentially get some help from this new federal administration on. All right. Now, we also uh, have to address the news that SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Guild, of which uh, I am a member, is uh, currently, for not for the acting part, by the way, I think <laughs> if they ever saw me act, they'd kick me out just like they might be kicking out Donald Trump. So they're revoking possibly the membership of Donald Trump. So let's remind people why he's in the union, which uh, some may find strange. Right. Well, of course, before he was president, he was a reality TV star on The Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice, but he'd also played himself on a bunch of TV shows, uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Nanny, Sex in the City. He was in movies, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, um, and uh, Zoolander. So he's been a SAG member actually since 1989. All right. So then why is SAG after considering expelling him and why now? 
Well, on Tuesday, SAG's board voted that Trump had, quote, violated the union's constitution, citing his role in inciting the attack in the Capitol and singling out in particular his treatment of journalists, many of whom, like UA, are SAG after members. Now, um, Rebecca, I, I, you know, all the things you mentioned with Donald Trump, I can't, I forget he had that long IMDb page. I mean, that is one <laughs> decent uh, stretch of movies there. Um, I'm wondering, you know, he had such success with The Apprentice on TV. Do you think there's a chance that NBC or some other network might say, hey, you know, you're not doing anything for a couple of years. Why not go back on television? Wow. I mean, I, I, I think the likelier scenario is that Trump would pursue uh, one of the sort of right wing networks that has courted him and wanted to be in business with him. I think it will be a very challenging time for a mainstream uh, American network to start doing business with Donald Trump again anytime in the near future. All right. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. My acting height, it was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. This was from like the 90s, back with, back with, when they weren't as technically updated as they are today. But I was in the background of the No Clowning Around episode. We were filming at Magic Mountain, and I high-fived a clown in the background. That was me. That was, in case you were wondering, was that aim? Yes, it was. That was me. Go check out your DVD or your VHS tape if you still have it. Uh, there are a million and one ways uh, for you to contact us. You can find us on Twitter, at Take2. That's at Take2. You can find me there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks uh, for trusting us with your time. Take2 is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.